so to keep us from falling apart We'll write songs in the dark And to stop us from fading away We'll write for a better day Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast The podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer So you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school And now here's your host, Patrick Beeman Fifty thousand people in this city. Professor Ilian, who's also on the commission, says the radiation isn't high enough to evacuate. Ilian isn't a physicist. Well, he's a medical doctor. If he says it's safe, it's safe. <laughs> Not if they stay here. We're staying here. Yes, we are, and we'll be dead in five years. Hey everyone, it's Patrick. Welcome to the third episode in our Chernobyl series with myself and Dr. Greg Thompson, who is a private practice radiation oncologist. Let's get into today's episode. What about this? Um, In the Chernobyl series, the uh, and it wasn't explained. Some of the workers who were exposed within the, you know, uh, a few feet or, or yards of um, this reactor core or in the immediately surrounding area um, started to taste metal. Do you have an explanation for why that side effect would be there? And does it occur in therapeutic contexts? Uh, the metallic taste, um, I, I don't know the, the mechanism of that, nor have I heard it or read it explained before. We certainly see that um, with both radiation therapy as well as chemotherapy. I'd say it's a little bit more common with different chemotherapeutics, um, but I'll be, I'll be the first to say I, I just don't know the answer to your question, but somebody else may. Yeah, and if somebody does, send us an email, info at insidetheboards.com. That would be great. Um, trying to think, what other, uh, what other misconceptions do patients bring to you? Or would you hear from, say, medical students when, when you were a resident? Uh, any examples of just anything that stands out? I think patients get very confused between radiation therapy and chemotherapy. So, you know, somebody is diagnosed with cancer, you know, referred to us, they referred to Medonc, they referred to a surgeon, and it's just a lot of information uh, for them, and the terms are confusing. And so the way I explain it uh, generally to patients is when you think about, you know, cancer, there generally are three approaches, surgery, radiation, and, and some sort of systemic therapy. And so, you know, surgery is usually pretty obvious to a, a patient. Generally, when we, when we talk about systemic therapy, it's going to be some sort of medication. And that's usually familiar to a patient too, either something they ingest or something that's uh, injected through the uh, venous system. And then there's radiation therapy, which is generally just an x-ray, really no different than other x-rays that folks experience in terms of what they go through. Uh, But the difference is that it is kind of focused and pointed at a specific area. So from a conceptual standpoint, it's a lot more like surgery uh, and that it's a localized treatment. And so, you know, the way we use it, sometimes it's radiation alone is the local management. Um, sometimes it's surgery followed by radiation uh, just to make sure that if there are any cells left behind that, you know, kind of do a wipe up job. Sometimes radiation is used before surgery to help uh, shrink a tumor and make surgery easier. Uh, and so those are the kind of the ways we use it in the curative setting. You already alluded to the fact that it's used frequently in the palliative setting as well. In that circumstance, usually we don't have to give quite as much radiation because the goal is just to relieve whatever the problem is, be it pain or uh, like obstruction of a bronchus or, or bleeding. 
uh, and, and not necessarily to eradicate every last uh, cell in that area. All right, here's another question. A 20-year-old female is being seen for genetic counseling. She has no medical history, but her mother was recently diagnosed with Lee-Fromani syndrome. Her paternal uncle died at age 22 from osteosarcoma, and her paternal grandmother died at age 52 from adrenal carcinoma. A genetic mutation in which of the following will most likely be present upon further testing? Is choice A, APC, B, VHL, C, P10, or D, TP53? And the correct answer here is choice D, a mutation in TP53. So Lee-Fraumeni syndrome is an autosomal dominant hereditary cancer syndrome that presents with a bunch of malignancies, usually when patients are younger. And it's caused by inheritance of a mutation in the tumor protein P53 gene, or TP53, which, I don't know if you need to know this, but is located on chromosome 17. You probably know P53 is a tumor suppressor protein, and perhaps that it's known as the guardian of the genome. Uh, And it acts through several ways to prevent the development of malignant growth. One, it arrests cell growth at the G1 slash S regulation point when DNA is damaged. It activates DNA repair proteins. And three, it's involved in the initiation of apoptosis for irreparably damaged cells. P53 is activated by a number of insults, including DNA damage like ultraviolet radiation, ionizing radiation or toxins, oxidative stress, and overactive oncogenes. And, you know, we were trying to find questions for uh, this radiation-related series, and, you know, P53 seemed legit, um, even if it is just tangentially related to topics related to ionizing radiation. At any rate, Loss of P53 inhibits proper DNA repair and allows for uh, greater potential for mutagenesis and the survival of malignant cells. And this one's important to remember because more than half of all human tumors have some mutation in P53. Specifically in Lee-Fromani syndrome, patients suffer from a number of malignancies, but especially those affecting the musculoskeletal system, breast, brain, and adrenals, with the risk of developing invasive cancer reaching about 50% by age 30 and like 90% by age 70. Just a quick note on some of these incorrect answers. APC encodes... Uh, Another tumor suppressor gene, which binds and inhibits beta-catenine, a protein involved in cell-to-cell adhesion, and this also gets mutated in several um, cancers. Inactivating mutations in APC cause familial adenomatous polyposis, which is an autosomal dominant condition in which patients acquire a number of precancerous adenomatous polyps throughout the large intestine with there being a 93% risk of colon cancer by age 50. VHL, this is the von Hippel-Lindau tumor suppressor, um, which acts to inhibit hypoxia inductible factor, a protein that promotes survival in low oxygen conditions and is upregulated in a number of malignancies. 
So you get that. The VHL tumor suppressor inhibits hypoxia inductible factor, the protein that promotes survival in low oxygen conditions and gets upregulated in a number of malignancies. So mutations in VHL cause von Hippel-Lindau disease, which is known for its um, propensity to produce a number of benign and malignant tumors uh, like hemangioblastomas, pheochromocytoma, renal cell carcinoma, pancreatic cysts, and in general, angiomatosis. Finally, P10 encodes phosphatase and tension homolog protein. P10, phosphatase, tension, get it, P10, uh, which is another tumor suppressor that prevents excess cell growth through regulating multiple cellular targets. It's mutated in a number of adult onset cancers, especially glioblastoma, endometrial cancer, and prostate cancer. I don't know if this is helpful, but prostate is the first letter in P10. Um, There's an E for endometrial in P10. And then uh, TNN, I guess you could say top of the noggin for uh, brain cancer, specifically glioblastoma. Uh, I don't know if that's helpful, but maybe. At any rate, inherited mutations in P10 lead to Cowden syndrome, characterized by multiple benign tumors, uh, hamartomas, uh, but also an increased risk of breast, uterine, and thyroid cancers. All right, so there's a little bit about some genetic mutations of tumor suppressor and tumor uh, regulating proteins. Uh, So let's get back to our Chernobyl series. I know when I think this is probably the experience of a lot of medical students too. You, you know, you're you're preparing for your OBGYN shelf, and you read about all these cancers, and in the review book it says you know treat with chemotherapy or, or treat with radiation. Or I guess is there a general way to think about why something would be why a cancer would be amenable to radiation? Um, over and above, uh, say, chemotherapy or excisional therapy. We kind of alluded to um, some of this, but just to explicate it. From a, if you wanted to just really keep it as simple as possible, you know, uh, any kind of solid tumor, the kind of the breakdown is on presentation, is it curable or not? And that mostly means looking at the stage and for most cancers stages one two and three would be considered curable and stage four would be considered incurable anything that's in the incurable setting you know palliative treatment is oftentimes systemic therapy basically just to keep you know the disease under control with symptom management based on where the disease is with surgery or radiation as needed in the curative setting uh, stages one two and three it really it, it goes more towards the local management is how is it managed locally um, and so for instance a breast cancer very amenable to surgery a lung cancer that's you know involving the pulmonary artery not so much and so that's where radiation therapy is going to be the local management chemotherapy in the curative setting is used differently it's used either as a radio sensitizer to make radiation more effective or to eradicate any micrometastatic disease that might be there. Um, and that's 
you know, going to be the rate limiting issue for a patient if they go through curative therapy. If there's micrometastatic disease somewhere else and they're going to eventually develop metastases, can you give chemotherapy to eradicate that and, and put them back into the curative setting? As far as non-solid um, malignancies, so leukemias, yeah. for the most part, lymphomas, that's going to be simply systemic therapy. Um, and see that, I mean, that makes sense to me because you can't um, irradiate the, the whole like uh, blood or um, you wouldn't want to irradiate the, the bone marrow or source for any of these mutated cells, right? But the only time that that is done, um, it, there's a total body irradiation, which is a kind of a specialized part of my field, something we don't do at my small community center, but the big academic centers do it, um, is done as an, a part of induction for transplant. And so oftentimes, instead of giving really potent chemotherapy agents that will obliterate bone marrow, that certainly is done. Uh, but you can give some potency of systemic therapy then also do total body irradiation uh, to try to really eradicate the bone marrow completely before transplant. Wow, that also sounds terrible. That's awful. Yeah, that, that does not sound good. Um, and that's where you see a lot of these prodromal effects, um, the nausea and things like that. Let's break for another question. Uh, this one's near and dear to my heart as an OBGYN, and I wrote it, so... Which of the following's most likely outcome for the fetus? That's our question to focus on. A 25-year-old nurse is admitted to the hospital for acute radiation sickness. She was a first responder during a nuclear disaster and was exposed to a high dose of ionizing radiation. Two weeks following the radiation exposure, a pregnancy test is positive. She is estimated to be at five weeks gestational age. She initiates prenatal care and at 20 weeks presents for a routine anatomy scan of the fetus. She inquires about the consequences of her prior radiation exposure. So which of the following is the most likely outcome for her fetus? Is it A, miscarriage, B, fetal malformation, C, an increased risk of childhood malignancy, or D, no observable radiation-related effects? And the correct answer here is actually D, no observable radiation-related effects. Okay, so this one might throw you a bit of a loop, or uh, throw you for a bit of a loop. So what's important to note here is the timeline. Okay, so she's exposed to ionizing radiation, and two weeks later, she has a positive pregnancy test. She's estimated to be five weeks gestational age at that time. All right, so follow this. This means that at the point of her radiation exposure, her embryo was just in the process of implantation. She was essentially three weeks pregnant, if you will. And just remember that we, by convention, assign gestational age based on the last menstrual period or an imputed last menstrual period. Uh, hence, just to draw this out more, you can't really be two weeks pregnant because you may not even had intercourse to fertilize uh, an egg at that point. So two weeks after fertilization would be four weeks gestational age. A little distinction here that I think people don't necessarily think about and, and probably leads to some confusion. So hopefully I clear that up. 
She's three weeks gestational age or about one week following conception at the point of exposure. So what does this mean? Well, the effect of radiation exposure during pregnancy depends on the gestational age of the fetus. Importantly, based on the studies we have from the results of the Chernobyl fallout and uh, the Hiroshima bombing, we're able to categorize levels of radiation exposure into four groups. All right. Uh, the main ones being in, in relation to pregnancy, uh, miscarriage or pregnancy loss, fetal malformation, developmental delay, and carcinogenesis. The effects of radiation exposure during pregnancy depend on the gestational age. And so this, I think, is pretty easy to think about and helps you kind of frame also um, how the stages of embryogenesis in general lend themselves to particular consequences uh, on a pregnancy when uh, women are exposed uh, to uh, various substances or, or toxins or whatever um, uh, as they progress along in pregnancy. So miscarriage, pregnancy loss, often or most often occurs when radiation exposure happens in early gestation, like the first two weeks after conception. So that was choice A. So she was exposed at three weeks. But the important point we have in this vignette is that she is 20 weeks gestational age when she's asking about the consequences of prior radiation exposure. In obstetrics, miscarriage or spontaneous abortion is defined as a, essentially a pregnancy loss prior to 20 weeks. Um, and the reason for the distinction is that after 20 weeks, the mechanisms and causes of a um, pregnancy loss um, are kind of different. And we then refer to the, the conditions that lead to that as, say, preterm labor, for instance. I mean, there's some wiggle room here. Uh, and chiefly, spontaneous abortions tend to occur in the first trimester. At any rate, we know that she hasn't, because she's at 20 weeks, had a spontaneous abortion or miscarriage. And so this rules out miscarriage. Why? Because she was exposed essentially a week after fertilization. And one to two weeks after fertilization, the effects of radiation exposure and a lot of teratogenic things, they're an all-or-nothing phenomenon. So either the uh, pregnancy is lost and the pregnancy can't continue, or nothing happens, which is choice D, no observable radiation-related effects. Now, the most sensitive period for teratogenicity is weeks two through eight after conception, uh, and this is also a period that's you know ripe for the development of mental delay, developmental delay due to interruptions in normal organogenesis. You see this a lot, and in practice, we OBGYNs tend to be very cautious or more cautious about uh, medications or um, other potential exposures of women within that first trimester, in that first trimester period, especially up to eight weeks. Fetuses are actually more resistant to radiation during the second and third trimesters. In other words, to summarize, the developing human is most sensitive to the lethality of ionizing radiation during the first 14 days after conception. This is when the uh, pregnancy either survives undamaged or is resorbed. 
Um, this is our all-or-nothing phenomenon. But radiation teratogenesis, growth restriction, or carcinogenesis are not observed during this stage of development. Two to eight weeks after conception or four to ten weeks after the last menstrual period, the embryo can be damaged um, as a result of radiation-induced cell death, problems uh, affecting cell migration and proliferation, or mitotic delay. Lethality rarely occurs, and the major consequence of radiation at this time are fetal growth restriction and congenital malformations, particularly of the CNS. So you see microcephaly, um, gross um, ocular abnormalities, and uh, concomitant intellectual disability. Microcephaly is the most frequently cited manifestation of radiation injury in utero. And carcinogenic effects should be thought of as being the primary consequence of significant radiation exposure after the period of embryogenesis. All right, that's it for today's episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. We'll be back with even more interesting, fun, and high-yield educational content to help you achieve your goals on the boards. Thanks to Chris Brightigan, the executive producer of this series, and Ike Potter, who is the producer of the main ITV podcast. All right, special thanks to the guys from Enter Shikari for letting us use the song Radiate off their LP Rat Race. You can listen to Enter Shikari wherever you find music. So they keep us from falling apart. We'll write songs in the dark. And to stop us from fading away. We'll write for a better. Place.